Well, welcome to the Empower Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and ultimately empowers you to influence people and transform cities. Enjoy the message. The thing about the Bible is we all approach Scripture from different places. In this room, my guesses are there are some people who are very comfortable with Scripture, very comfortable with jumping into it, getting something out of it. There are some of us who maybe heard it's a roadmap for your life. It's, it's a plan, it's a good morals. It's maybe some fairy stories written down in a book. It's something else, but we all come to it with different expectations. And I have found that within those expectations, we actually need a clear definition of what the Bible is. We need to know what it is we are approaching when we come to what people might describe as the Word of God. And this is my definition, and I think it's helpful. It says, the Bible is the chosen means that God has revealed Himself to us, revealing who He is and how we might become like Him. The Bible is the chosen means that God has revealed Himself to us, revealing who He is and how we might become like Him. That God, looking through the corridors of time, choosing how am I going to reveal myself to people? How am I going to show people who I am? didn't choose a Netflix documentary. Although I'd be all over that. I smashed those things out. They're awesome. He didn't choose a, a YouTube channel. He didn't choose an app. He chose the Bible. And he said, this is how I'm going to reveal my character and who I am to, to my people. And then inviting those people to share in that relationship and become like me. See, I think for many of us, we either go to the Bible and we just, you know, get a bit of uh, motivation, we start reading it, and then we get confused, and we either just stop and go, all right, let's, let's, you know, try that again in six months' time, let's try another Bible reading plan, or we go back and we hold on to the few scriptures that we actually understand, and the ones that we feel comfortable with. And we'll sit with those and not actually accept the beauty, the diversity, the richness that is actually here of how God has revealed himself to us. See, Jesus referred to Scripture, our consumption of Scripture like bread. Now, bread in my household means that we probably don't have much left to eat. (laughs) Going to quickly make a sandwich. Let's whip this thing up. Uh, or i am just got to make something quick. But that is not how we ought to treat the Bible. In fact, when Jesus refers to it as the bread of, when he refers to himself as the bread of life, but also says that it is like bread, for the audience that Jesus was talking to, bread was the reason that you could live. What Jesus is saying is that without the Scriptures, you die. And so I don't think you can just say, well, the Bible is for a certain group of people in the church. I don't think you can say the Bible is for those people who have the ability to sit down and read and they like their own space and they're probably introverts. It's not just for them. I don't think Jesus lets us off the hook that easily. I think in what he's saying is, I've come to invite you into the richness of life that you may consume of this bread and find it. 
And as we look at this first chapter of James, one of the questions he is answering is what does it mean to have a meaningful life? What does it look like? He's going to use a, a phrase that you might lack nothing. What would it look like in your life for you to lack nothing? Would it be that job? Would it be finishing your uni degree and getting that job, actually getting a job from your uni degree? Imagine that, right? I'm with you, people. Would it be uh, a new jet ski? Would it be a new boat? Would it be a relationship or finding a partner? As somebody who's getting old, 25, I know, I know a few things. And I have found out that as much as you might get, go from one thing, somehow I got a girlfriend, somehow, somehow she agreed to marry me, somehow I got a job, somehow I got my driver's license, hello teenagers. And slowly did I realize that the, the options that I thought might fulfill my life quickly become narrow. And my argument tonight, and I think the argument from James tonight, is that God's purpose for our lives is not about our happiness. I want to be careful with this. It's not about our happiness. It's not about our comfort. And, and I've been doing the church gig for long enough to see that people, when they do believe that God is only after your happiness and suffering comes, trial comes, the quickly they go, oh, where's God in that? God doesn't work anymore. See ya. And so the reason that I bring this up is actually out of a place of love. Actually out of a place of going, hey, let's get some things right. Let's get some things clear. My argument tonight is that God's priority is that we might find our fulfillment in Him and our holiness in Him. That we might become like Jesus as He has revealed Himself. And James is going to give us a couple of whys. It's like a why sandwich when we look at this block of text. It's like, why? What, 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 what? Why, okay? So we're visual learners. You've got that now in your head. You're like me, you're like, why, what, 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 why? Okay, sandwich, cool. So let's read uh, verses 1 to 18 together. And then I want us to pray. So if you've got a Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it great joy my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. So if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. I also think that that's a pretty brutal statement, okay? You're not weird for thinking that. It's all right. Verse 9, let the brother of humble circumstance boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humili humiliation because he, he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. It fl its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person 
will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lies, who does not change like a shifting shadow. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us your word to show us who you are, show us who we could be if we trusted and put our faith in you. So Father, we ask for your spirit to do a work, do the work of illumination, show us what scriptures we need to meditate on and consider. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of James the author is super interesting. Uh, Tradition tells us that he's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I also have a half-brother, and my name is James, so there are some things working together. I, I relate. My older brother is not called Jesus. That would be really weird. Uh, and I would actually consider, I think I might have written this book in a previous life or something. But James is skeptical of his older brother claiming to be God, and rightfully so. Like, can you imagine... Family dinner. Hands around the table, about to say grace, but they don't close their eyes. They look at Jesus in the high chair. What? Or, okay, maybe Passover, you know, the Jewish festival, and Jesus is just whispering, James, hey, dude, that lamb's about me. Like, dude, get over yourself, seriously. <laughs> or maybe James is just trying to get some brownie points to his parents, like, Mom, Jesus hit me. Mary's response is, no, he didn't. Everything he does is perfect and good. And then like a family dinner, you know, there's a birthday or something. John the Baptist, the weird cousin comes around. He's eating locusts and camel hair. And, uh, and he's like, dude, all the stuff about the Old Testament, that's about him. And, you know, Jesus smacking a piñata or something. You know, it'd just be the most infuriating thing. In fact, there's this great bit in the Gospel of Mark in which James and his mum Mary go to take Jesus away because they think he might have lost a few marbles. Uh, they're thinking of trying to get him in a sleeveless jacket and just saying, hey, let's go sit in the corner for a little bit. But he's convinced of what, who Jesus is when Jesus appears to him in a resurrected body. He goes from being completely skeptical of who his brother is to then going, you're actually Lord. You are actually the God-man. You are Jesus, the one promised in the Old Testament. And I love it because he's probably a pretty hardened guy. He's probably like a chippy or a, a, a carpenter. That's the real word that people use. Uh, and he writes this letter with deep convic conviction of who his brother was. And it really is a confronting book. I was reading this and just wrestling and going, how am I going to talk about this nicely? Out of the 108 verses, there are 60 instructions 
telling people what to do. This is the kind of guy James is. He's black or white. And on the surface, some of these passages that we've just read can often feel like they contradict some of the Scriptures. They can feel like they contradict when Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life abundantly. James turns around and says, when you experience trials. Or Ephesians where it says, every blessing has been given to you. And here James is going, don't be doubting or double-minded. It can feel that James is actually something different, contradicting some of the other passages in Scripture. But to the original people that James is writing to, he's writing to a bunch of people who are suffering. He's writing to a bunch of people who are experiencing persecution. And with these verses that are great and awesome, and I'm there with them, They're dealing with the questions of what does it make for a meaningful life? What what is God up to when this is going on? Is God still moving? Is His plan still being fulfilled? These are the questions we all experience, right? Have you ever experienced a time which you're going, I don't know if God's good anymore. I don't think He's actually all powerful. He let this happen. But the promise from James is that Jesus is still fulfilling his plan. And I love that the Bible is not sanitized from suffering. For those that are experiencing any sort of suffering, the Bible sees you and hears you and knows you. For those that feel that God is distant, the authors of Scripture know what it is like. I would argue Jesus knows what it's like. And so my first point tonight is that God is after our holiness and is finding our fulfillment in Him. Let's jump to verses 1 to 4. I love the way that James describes Jesus. Again, all of these passages are super, super rich. But the title that he gives to Jesus is Lord Jesus Christ. And we might just go, oh, well, that is just, that is just the Bible being the Bible, man. That's just, that's just the thing. But he's being very particular. To a people that is suffering, he's saying, Lord, the sovereign one, the one who is all-powerful, almighty, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And Christ ain't his last name. Christ is the anointed one, the king. And so to a people who are suffering, James reminds them of who who he is serving. And he says, I'm serving the sovereign king. The one who has all power and all authority across the globe, even in our suffering, even in the moments that God seems far away, He is still ruling and reigning. And then verses two to four, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. I first read that and I thought of like those terrible, terrible PTs that like you're doing push-ups or something. I don't obviously, uh, but some people do. Uh, you're doing push-ups and then they just go, no pain, no gain, do it again, do it again. Enjoy it, enjoy the sweat. You know, it sounds like that's what James is saying. Consider it great joy. Dude, you're suffering, consider it great joy, go again. But that is not what James is like. That is, in fact, what he's saying is there is something greater going on than just your suffering. In fact, God might be shaping and making you holy. His plans actually might be being fulfilled even when you don't feel like it. We sang the song Waymaker. The text screams it. 
even when we don't see it, we can consider it joy, not happiness. Happiness can be taken from you when a dude cuts you off on the highway. You want to know the sinfulness of man? Just let a guy go on in front, not indicate. But there's joy. There's a hope. There's something that Christ is ruling and reigning and nothing can take that away from me. That's why Paul would go on to write, there is no no height, nor depth, nor any created thing that could take it away from the love of Jesus. God has the ability to use trials to actually shape us, to make us more like Him. Because believe it or not, If you know the why, if you know why God is doing what He is doing, we can all endure any hell. Because something greater is going on than just me being happy. A weekend away will make me happy. It won't give me joy. Going, chilling on the beach, make me happy. Just in peace and quiet, read a book. So good. Sarsaparilla, how good. I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, sorry. But it won't give me joy. And maybe God, instead of our happiness, is wanting to give us joy, mourning to make us holy. So I ask again, what does it mean for you to lack nothing? Is it something that you just want to gain? Is it a relationship? Is it a thing? Is it a income? Is it a relationship? Is it anything? What is it? Because it can't give you joy. As C.S. Lewis will say, it's not that our Lord finds our desires too strong, but he finds them too weak. They're not strong enough. Only God can provide. And then verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete and lacking nothing. Testing of your faith produces endurance. What is it that rises to the surface when you're tested? For me, uh, I think I've shared this story uh, a few times from this platform. But there was a a week, I was still a student at uni, and that was just a bad week. Uh, I was driving uh, early in the morning on the highway and got into a pretty uh, serious car accident. Uh, One of those moments that it was like, man, I gotta pray because I'm seeing Jesus next, you know. Uh, Car gets written off because of the circumstances, it wasn't able to be insured and a lot going on. And then I rock up to work the next Wednesday and they say, oh, the the part-time job you're working, we probably can't keep you on anymore. And like on paper, that seems like nothing, right? But for some reason, it truly tested what I'd put my hope in, what I'd counted to make, give me joy, what I'd counted to be meaningful in my life. And so when we go through testing, what comes out of you What are the words that come out of your mouth? And have you laid to rest that cruel weight of comfort and happiness, that pleasure, and placed your hands in the maker, the only one who can give you true fulfillment? There's a reason that we feel more down 
when we've spent an evening binging through a Netflix series. We go to bed, hop on our phone, scroll Instagram, and then go, how come they get all that stuff? How come their lives look like that? Just James, that's okay, I feel it. But that's because we've put our hopes in something else. And so this why, now we can consider some what's. So verse five to eight. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith without doubting for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. In the ancient world, wisdom was so deeply associated with your class, with how much money you had, how much education you could have. And here John, oh James sorry, breaks that down and says, no, all have access to the wisdom of God. We must only ask for it and not be double-minded. And double-minded isn't just doubt, isn't just like, God, if you can. No, double-minded is being half-hearted. I've gone to church on a Sunday, but then throughout the week, I'm not sure. I want to live another life. I want to see if I can go in two different directions at the same time. I want to see if I can pursue my joys, my happiness, what's mine, but also pursue the things of God. That's what it means to be double-minded. And yet he says, only then if we get rid of that can we accept wisdom. And next, what is know the limits of worldly blessing? Verses nine to 11, let the brother of humble circumstance boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. The sun rises and together with a scorching wind dries up the grass. His flower falls off and his beautiful appearance perishes. See, if God is after, if our holiness, then our material wealth is not the measurement of his favour towards us. This is what this scripture is saying. The rich, the poor, God's judgment will come the same. Whether you look like a pretty flower or just some withered grass, whether you've got it all or you don't have anything, no, God sees that all the same. And if it is about holiness, if it is about making us like Jesus, then that is not our measurement. And then the final what? Endure to receive in verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We like everyone else enduring. Uh, Movie characters, uh, Marvel heroes, we like them going through a tough thing and watching them do it. What's that like SAS show that's on, right? I don't watch TV, so this is the best reference I've got. But like, we love them seeing them endure. We love seeing Big Brother watching some people just endure each other, right? It's manic. Again, proof of the sinfulness of people, right? But we don't, often don't like it for ourselves. And what Jesus is offering is that through our endurance, we might receive a crown of life. Not for those who love God's stuff, but for those who love Him. Yeah. And as the band come up, the second, the last why in the why what sandwich is that we might know God. See, during suffering, during trials, sometimes it's not even we're questioning God's character. Or sorry, we're not questioning where God is, but we're questioning His character. 
We're questioning what he's, he is like. Hence, James is going to say, he's not like a shifting shadow. And to that, there is great hope. In a world that is full of voices contradicting, disagreeing with each other, that there is one true North Star, and he is not like a shifting shadow. He's not changing shape. He's not changing his will. He's not changing how he feels and thinks towards you. He doesn't regret saving you. You haven't sinned too far to outgo the price of the cross. There is no way that God can change his mind and his love toward you. Something that was impressed on my heart, and it's a weird scripture, but it's 1 Corinthians 9.20. And it's talking about sexual immoral sin. And Paul ends his kind of critique of what this church is doing, the Corinthian church, and he says, you have been bought at a price. And that for us is, yes, stop what you're doing because you're not your own, absolutely. But that is also a great reason to hope. That through our suffering, through whatever may come, I've been bought by Jesus. I'm His. I'm not anyone else's. As Colossians would say, I've been hidden in Christ now. I'm not part of the world. My desires are not of them. I'm bought by Jesus. And nothing can take that away from me. So my question tonight is, where have you put your joy? That's a hard question because that might hurt. Where have you put your joy? What would it mean for you to lack nothing? To say, I've got it all now. What would that look like for you? And can I say something real, quite confronting? If it's not Jesus, then it's cheap. And it will drift away. If what you are counting on is not Jesus, it will float away. Family goes, money goes. But Jesus, not a shifting shadow, stays the same forever. So can we pray together? Could I get everyone to stand to their feet? We've heard a lot of whys and a lot of what's. But I want to give us a time because sometimes we can get out of church, we can go watch a footy game and life just goes on. There's something powerful about stopping and asking for a heart diagnosis. Because only through a diagnosis can you receive treatment. So as we worship, we're going to sing Waymaker. We're going to sing about the one who can make a way even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. And we're just going to ask the Spirit to confront us, to meet us where we are. And say, Jesus, what have we put our hope in? What would it mean for us to lack nothing? If I have Jesus, I have everything. I have the eternal God. But if I don't, it's just like sand, a sand castle on a sea shore. Let's worship together, church.
Father God, we submit our desires, our hopes, our dreams and put them in your hand. You're the only one who can be trusted. And so Jesus, we ask you to confront us, to test us, as scary as that might be, God, to see what's actually in us, that when we're pressed, what actually comes out of us, Jesus. And while I've got every eye uh, closed and every head bowed, uh, for James the writer, he got converted. He was convinced of the goodness of Jesus by his brother rocking up to him in a risen form after dying, rising three days later. And maybe today, God is a reality for you, but you just haven't engaged in that relationship. You just haven't said, yeah, you know what? I actually wanna follow you. Just this last week, I was chatting with a guy and honestly, he was like, I think I wanna follow Jesus, but I've gotta count the cost. Gotta know what this actually means, what I might have to say no to, what I might have to say yes to. And so maybe that's you and you're, you're uh, considering that. Can I just ask you to lift up your hand? I just wanna pray with you. It's just me, a couple of guys at the back who wanna help me out. But is that you? Do you wanna put your trust and hope in Jesus? That's awesome, I see that hand, that's all right. To anyone else, I don't wanna miss this. God sees you. That's another hand. Thanks so much. Is there anyone else? I'd love it if we could pray together. If we could just repeat this line by line after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for paying the price that I might be made right with God. In Jesus' name, amen.